time is now 6 o'clock on the dot. And welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, January 25th. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, a bipartisan bill to ban child sex dolls is headed to Governor Evers' desk. We'll examine how rose salt usage affects our local water sources. A report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum has the latest data on child tax credits. And in the second half, a message from Big Brothers Big Sisters Dane County, advice on how to handle ice dams, and some insight from a seamstress. This is Marcus Slayton and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. And here are tonight's headlines. President Joe Biden visited a deteriorating bridge linking Duluth, Minnesota and Superior, Wisconsin today to point out the steps his administration is taking to restore failing infrastructure across the country. According to the Associated Press, $1 billion will be spent to repair and upgrade the John A. Blatnick Memorial Bridge, which serves as a transportation link for some 33,000 vehicles every day. Heavy truck traffic has been diverted from the weakened structure, however, resulting in long detours for much of the commercial traffic between the two cities. Before Biden's visit, White House officials noted that the Republican congressman representing northern Minnesota, Peter Stauber, took credit for the bridge funding after voting against the infrastructure bill. Congressman Tom Tiffany, who represents the Wisconsin district that includes Superior, also voted against the measure. Republicans in the Wisconsin Assembly narrowly approved a bill today seeking a referendum to ban abortions after 14 weeks of pregnancy, the Associated Press reports. The bill proposes that the referendum be held during the April election. However, state statute requires that referendum questions be submitted to the agency preparing the ballots no later than 70 days before the election date. That deadline passed earlier this week. The bill passed by a vote of 53 to 46, with 10 Republicans voting against the measure. The bill now moves to the state Senate, where its fate is unclear. Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew said this month that Republican senators would have trouble getting behind a bill that Governor Evers says he will veto. Declining interest in hunting and fishing has produced a deficit in the state's fish and wildlife account that could approach $16 million by 2026, the Department of Natural Resources says. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, the DNR's budget staff informed the Natural Resources Board Wednesday of the pending shortfall. The account pays for about 20% of the DNR's workforce. The Wisconsin Policy Forum found last year that revenue from fish and wildlife licenses fell from roughly $79.5 million in 2021 to $70.7 million in 2022. The DNR is authorized to spend $74.6 million from the account in fiscal 2024. It's the agency's primary funding source for fish and wildlife management and law enforcement, according to WPR. The state legislature sent a bill requiring a new population goal for gray wolves in Wisconsin to Governor Evers today, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The bill that passed the assembly on a voice vote does not set a specific population number and would apply only if the gray wolf is delisted as an endangered species. The state senate approved the bill along party lines in October. The State Natural Resources Board approved a new wolf management plan in October that also admits a specific population goal. 
The plan would seek to maintain a statewide population of 800 to 1,200 wolves, a level consistent with recent years. The state assembly voted today to increase the number of private zoos exempt from Department of Natural Resources licensing, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Currently, zoos accredited by the American Zoo and Aquarium Association are exempt from licensing requirements. The bill adopted today would expand that exemption to zoos accredited by the Zoological Association of America. Animal rights activists have described the Zoological Association as a fig leaf for zoos that do not meet the higher zoo and aquarium standards of care. Only one zoo in the state is accredited by the Zoological Association, the Wildwood Wildlife Park Zoo and Safari in Minocqua. Those were the headlines. Now, on to today's top stories. A bill that would criminalize the manufacturing, sale, and possession of child sex dolls is headed to Governor Evers' desk. WRT News producer Faye Parks has the story. I think this is one of those bills that you kind of don't believe it actually has to exist. Just the idea of having a, a child doll to perform sexual acts on it is just inherently gross. That was Zach Jekyll. Last May, he submitted testimony in support of a bill that would criminalize the possession, manufacturing, and sale of sex dolls that resemble minors. Jekyll works as an investigator for the village of Ashwabanon in their Department of Public Safety. He says that his own department has yet to encounter such dolls, but they did receive an alert from another law enforcement agency in the state warning them that these dolls existed. That's when we started contacting our representatives saying, hey, it's wrong. It obviously leads down the track of sexually assaulting an actual child. We should probably do something just like I think seven other states have done. The bill defines a child sex doll as a, quote, anatomically correct doll, mannequin or robot with features that resemble a minor that is intended for use in sex acts, unquote. If passed, it would also criminalize dolls that could be used to manipulate or instruct children in sex acts or normalize that behavior. Senator Jesse James, a Republican from Altoona, is one of the authors on the bill. He says that there is generally additional evidence that can help law enforcement determine if a doll is supposed to resemble a minor. I've been told that the invoices even articulate that it's they can be identified as a six to eight year old male or female doll. Um, they have infants. They have just whatever preferred age that these individuals target, I guess, for lack of a better term. Most of the time you come across these dolls during a child pornography investigation. Senator James also says he is not aware of any manufacturers stateside. Most of the dolls are purchased from international companies. And in one case in Wisconsin, an individual purchased a child sex doll for $30,000. Criminal penalties would vary depending on the offender's past violations, the number of dolls in their possession, and their past convictions for other crimes against children. And the punishment is steeper if a manufacturer designs a doll to look like a specific child. The bill makes an exception for folks who possess the dolls for work purposes, like law enforcement, physicians, psychologists, attorneys, or court officers. According to Jekyll, this proposed penalty would be a sufficient deterrent. And he says that a deterrent is needed, as using child sex dolls could lead pedophiles to escalate their behavior and harm an actual child. The thrill or the challenge sort of starts to get minimized until they're not satisfied until they get the real thing. But is there a chance that such dolls actually prevent people from offending? 
Senator James says that does not concern him. Doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, they are saying that it gets to the point to where it increases the dehumanization of the individual to where they may even look at a live person like this is normal behavior for them, so then they'll act on it. Since 2019, several states have outlawed child sex dolls, including Florida, Tennessee, South Dakota, Arizona, and Hawaii. And federal Republican lawmakers have been suggesting a nationwide ban since 2017, reports the Associated Press. They call it the Creeper Act. The latest federal proposal was referred to the House Committee on the Judiciary in April. Wisconsin's bill passed this month in both chambers with bipartisan support. Numerous law enforcement and social work associations have registered in support, as well as Wisconsin Family Action, a conservative Christian lobby. The bill now heads to Governor Evers' desk. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. It's Winter Salt Awareness Week. Earlier today, local water resource engineers gave a demonstration on how they test local waterways for chloride contamination from road salt. WORT reporter Sarah Gabler attended the demonstration to learn how one local creek is faring as the snowmelt from last week's storms enters the waterway. It is reading 4.2. And at 4.2, we are at 779 uh, parts per million of chloride. So that's a very high chloride limit. That's at the acute toxicity. Don't really want to be a fish swimming in Starkweather Creek today. Or a frog laying eggs. That was Phil Gabler, a water resource engineer with the city of Madison. He was reading the results of a test to see how much chloride from road salt is present in Starkweather Creek. So in a stream like Starkweather Creek, almost all of the chloride is from road salt, from from winter maintenance salt. Today's reading showed a dangerous level of chloride, meaning that today's Starkweather Creek is acutely toxic, according to both federal standards and Wisconsin's less stringent standards. Allison Madison is the project manager at Wisconsin SaltWise, an organization that educates the public on the effects of oversalting during the winter. She says that the spike in chloride levels in Starkweather Creek is common after a big snow. So in smaller water bodies, they have less ability to dilute the amount of salt that's coming in. In our lakes, if they're larger lakes, um, like Lake Mendota compared to Lake Winger, has more ability to dilute the salt that's coming in. Gabler was testing the water today as part of a press demonstration put on by the City of Madison Engineering Division and Wisconsin SaltWise during Winter Salt Awareness Week. I joined a group of other journalists at a small bridge over Starkweather Creek to watch Matt Noon, a senior environmental resource planner with the Capital Area Regional Planning Commission, or CARP, take water samples. Noon takes a sample by first plunging a bottle attached to a pole into the middle of the creek where there is more water flow. He rinses the bottle a few times in order to remove residue from previous samples before collecting his sample. Gabler and Noon are interested in the impacts of road salt on local waterways for a few reasons. They want to monitor chloride levels so that they can better understand how road salt and other factors affect local water quality. They also want to educate private contractors on salt use, those who don't have to report their salt usage. 
through education, contractors and property owners can reduce their spreads. The city of Madison advises using no more than a 12-ounce coffee mug of salt to cover 10 squares of sidewalk. The city itself is following its own advice. This winter, the streets division announced they've reduced their citywide salt application to cut pollution. That reduction of about 6%, or 50 miles of road, is expected to prevent roughly 270 tons of salt from entering local waterways this spring. For Allison Madison, a reduction in salt usage is key for both improving environmental and human health. We are drinking salted water right now in Madison, water that's been salted over the last several decades as we've put more and more salt down on our roads and parking lots and sidewalks. Under a rules change in 2022, the Madison City Council passed an ordinance limiting the excessive use of salt on sidewalks. They cited the environmental and public health concerns of oversalting and the hazards excessive salt poses for people using wheelchairs as main factors. Wisconsin SaltWise urges you to have a conversation with your neighbor if you spot them oversalting. They also have outreach tools like handouts and door hangers for a low-contact approach. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. State Republicans are pushing forward several bills to cut taxes in the hopes that Governor Evers will be willing to sign at least one of them. From expanding tax brackets to taking less of folks' retirement funds to child tax credits. Mark Summerhouse is the communications director and a researcher at Wisconsin Policy Forum. Earlier today, he discussed the Policy Forum's recent report on child tax credits with WORT news producer Faye Parks. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Faye. So what is a child tax credit and how has this tax shifted on the federal and state level in the last couple of years? Yeah, so a child tax credit is simply a tax credit toward a taxpayer, tax filer's income tax liability that they can claim for a given tax year. As many of your listeners are maybe aware, we do have a federal child tax credit that is available for households with you know minor children to be able to claim on their federal income taxes. And then our report kind of looked at the growing trend of more and more states that have begun to adopt child tax credits for their state income taxes. Wisconsin at this point in time does not have a state child tax credit. At the federal level, the child tax credit is partially refundable, which means that there is some share of that that can be given back to you know individual tax filers that qualify for it but may not have enough tax liability that it would just be you know a reduction in their actual tax liability. They can actually get a portion of it as a tax refund. And then the refundability question is one that different states have tackled differently with their state-level child tax credits. Some have made their child tax credits fully refundable. Others have not. So that's kind of something that varies from one state to another. But we can talk a little bit about some of the differences between what different states have done. So I believe your report mentions that there was an expansion to the child tax credit that ended in 2021. And this may have prompted this national trend. So I think there was a variety of things that probably have influenced the increasing number of states that are adopting child tax credits. I do think that one factor most likely was the fact that as part of the American Rescue Plan Act, shortly after President Biden took office, that he signed, you know, that was sort of a pandemic relief piece of legislation. And part of that did expand the federal child tax credit just for one year only. But it did seem to kind of, you know, raise visibility of the child tax credit as a sort of you know, mechanism to target tax relief toward families with children. 
And so, you know, I think that was one piece, but I think there were some other factors too. We certainly have seen rising inflation that has been, you know, really having an impact on a lot of family budgets. We've seen rising costs for childcare that a lot of families have been dealing with and are, you know, may be familiar with if they're paying a childcare provider. And then I would say the last factor that we can't overlook here was that there was kind of an unusual set of circumstances around 2021, 22, where a lot of states actually had budget surpluses. I mean, if you follow sort of state budgets, that's not a typical state of affairs. More often than not, states are looking at deficits, right? What do we what do we have to cut spending? Are we going to have to increase taxes? But due to a variety of factors in this period from kind of 21, 22, somewhat into 2023, we actually had a lot of states that had budget surpluses. And in the case of some of these states that we feature in our report, they decided to take some portion of their surplus and put it toward either creating a new child tax credit or expanding the child tax credit that they already had in place. Can you walk us through a couple examples? I know you mentioned that Minnesota's is most aggressive. There is a lot of variety in what different states have done. And it's just kind of a reminder that when it comes to tax policy and tax credits, it's really up to lawmakers and policymakers in terms of how they want to structure these things, who they're trying to benefit, how generous the tax credit is going to be, you know, just to give you kind of a sense of the scope here. I mean, we have a child tax credit in New Mexico that can be as little as $75 per child to Minnesota, where the child tax credit that they recently adopted and put into law is $17.50 per child. So it's a big you know, difference between those two. And we have a lot of states that fall somewhere in the middle between those $2 amounts. In the case of Minnesota, Minnesota, as I said, $17.50 per child, their tax credit is fully refundable. So if the tax filer does not have enough tax liability to actually be able to claim that as a credit, uh, they can receive potentially all or part of that as a tax refund. Most states have some sort of income limit. So if, if the tax filer earns above a certain amount, you know, they're no longer eligible for the tax credit. In many cases, if they earn less than that cutoff, but above a certain threshold, they may get like a portion of the tax credit. So not the full amount, but they may qualify for half or whatever, you know, share of the total credit amount. So that's another really common thing that we see a lot of states uh, doing. Here in Wisconsin, Governor Evers is prioritizing the child care crisis, while legislative leaders are advocating for a number of tax cuts. How much money would the average family save if they're getting a child tax cut here in Wisconsin? And could it offset child care expenses? That really would be up to policymakers in terms of how much tax relief families would see. I think that, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head and that Governor Evers has really been, you know, emphasizing the child care crisis. I know he did that again just this week in his State of the State address. We know he's concerned uh, just with the lack of both access and affordability of child care in a lot of communities throughout the state. We know that the Republican legislature is really prioritizing cutting taxes. And the legislature actually did pass here earlier this year a child independent care tax credit, which would have been a tax credit specifically for child care and dependent care costs. And the governor did veto that bill. You know, we know that there is some interest in the legislature in targeting tax relief toward families with children, families that are dealing with child care costs. And so that combined with the kind of growing trend of more states adopting child tax credits, including our neighbors to the West in Minnesota, was kind of part of what made us want to highlight this issue in our recent report. Say that Wisconsin does implement a child tax credit, how would it potentially affect the state's coffers? Again, that would really boil down to where in this broad continuum policymakers decided to go in terms of the credit amounts, the age of the child and the household income eligibility limits. 
there's a pretty wide spectrum that they could fall into there. The smallest budget impact of any of the states that we looked at was Utah. Their child tax credit's costing them about $9.6 million a year. That's in large part because their credit is, is not especially generous. It's $1,000 per child, which is a fairly large amount, but tax fathers are only eligible to claim children under the age of four. Very narrow age range there. And also their credit is not refundable. So that also eliminates some people that would potentially be eligible for it. So that's kind of the lower end. At the top end, we see a couple of states, Minnesota and New York. Uh, New York, of course, being one of the largest states, uh, that's part of the reason that their tax credit just has a larger price tag because there are so many people claiming it. Theirs is costing their state budget about $780 million annually. Uh, the one that Minnesota just adopted, and maybe a little better example for us here in Wisconsin because Minnesota is a pretty comparably sized state to Wisconsin, their child tax credit is costing about $400 million a year estimated. Those were estimates that were before the actual credit was adopted. So just caveat, it could be more or less than that, but that's what their budget folks did estimate for the cost of theirs. And keep in mind that that is a very generous tax credit. So I think if you were to look at these numbers for a lot of other states, it would certainly be less than $400 million. In most cases, quite a bit less, but that's what the cost would be over in Minnesota. All right. I think that covers all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd cool. like to share? The other thing that we didn't talk about that I wouldn't say is the most important thing to keep in mind, but is something that is kind of lurking there in the background of this whole conversation, which is kind of our state's demographics. Like most Midwestern states, we face some real demographic headwinds here in Wisconsin. Our population is not declining, as we see in some of our neighboring states, like Illinois and Michigan, but it's not growing very rapidly at all. And there's a variety of reasons for that, one of which is definitely our our declining birth rate. I don't think that many people would argue that, you know, providing a tax credit is going to really move the needle for families in terms of when they're thinking about family planning and things. But, you know, it is certainly one piece of a larger puzzle that, you know, potentially could make a state a little more attractive place to raise a family. And so, again, I wouldn't say that that's the most important thing to think about, but it is something that's kind of in the background of a lot of these conversations. And maybe, again, sort of a secondary factor that may be encouraging some states to look at child tax credits, trying to think of ways to make their state a little more, a little easier and a little more attractive place to raise a family. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Mark. Absolutely, Faye. It's always good uh, to join you. That was Mark Summerhauser, communications director and researcher with the Wisconsin Policy Forum. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with co-host Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us. Have you ever mistaken AM for PM and turned an entire day upside down with humor? That's exactly how feature contributor D-Star kickstarts his vibrant conversation with Tracy Anderson and Merv Seymour, forces behind the It Takes Little to Be Big campaign by Big Brothers Big Sisters of Dane County. This week's episode of Out of the Box is a heartfelt rally cry to bring new volunteers into the fold, focusing on the power and urgency of mentoring. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star, here with Tracy Anderson and Merv Seymour. How you guys doing this morning? We're good. I t- I'm good. I'll take good. Yeah. Afternoon. Good, good enough. Afternoon, yes. right? So mm, it's yeah, it's well. afternoon. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. How you guys doing this afternoon? Same as I was this morning. Good. Yeah, I'm doing good. The roads seem a little better. So. Are you trying to confuse? You trying to confuse us a little bit? Is that a trick I think question? I'm all right. Yeah. How am I doing huh. this afternoon? This actually is a, that is actually a deep question. Mm-hmm. 
I, I thought I was okay, but I'm okay. No, I'm good. Now. I gotta think about it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, you caused all that. You did all that. Sorry about that. So, Tracy, tell us why yeah. we are here. I would love to. So, Dee, thank you for having me back on the podcast. I'm Tracy Anderson, Community Outreach and Volunteer Manager at Big Brothers Big Sisters of Dane County. Dee is always helping us out when we want to get the word out about things. And we have this big campaign that we're launching, and it's called It Takes Little to Be Big. It's a six-week campaign, and it's a recruitment campaign. We're looking to try to get at least, like, 100 new volunteers in the door, preferably men of color, preferably men in general, and just really see if we could put Put a dent in our wait list. We have quite a wait list. It's close to 200 kids that are waiting. Most of those kids are kids of color and most of them are boys. So, you know, obviously as community outreach and just as the organization in general, we're always out recruiting. But we thought, you know, let's go into 2024 and do something big and do like a big recruitment campaign. So that's why I'm here. And you brought this fine gentleman here with you. Can you tell well, us? Who uh, are you talking, where, where is he? Who <laughs> are you talking about me? Oh, wow. You're talking yes. about me. Okay. I did. So I brought Merv. I met Merv. Actually, he reached out. I believe you were referred to someone at your job. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he reached out, you know, as community outreach, when I talk to different people and if they're interested, they reach out to me just to, you know, a quick meeting, just to answer any questions or they're thinking about it. And, you know, honestly, that day I thought, okay, it's going to be like, you know, a regular maybe 15 minute meeting. We're just going to talk really quick. I'm going to answer any questions. And Merv really impressed me. I think we stayed on for like an hour. Yeah, (laughs) probably. With his stories, he impressed me because he's a successful black male, but also because it moved me the reason why he was reaching out. So I thought I would love to have Merv on just to, I think you really represent It Takes Little to Be Big. Is it kind of like mirroring the reason why you chose to become a big sister? Not exactly. And I think that's a really good point, too, is that so many people have so many different reasons, right? I think probably, and we can talk about this a little more, but the commonality is we're people of color. And that That was my number one reason. I was matched in September. I wanted a black girl, you know, a young black girl, so she could have someone to look up to. And that was, you know, really the biggest reason I wanted to do it. For the people that don't know you, Merv, uh, can you tell us... Who doesn't know... Wait, first of all, first of all, let's stop. Stop the tape right now. Stop. Who... Who, Can you see his bio? Who in here don't know who I... Who doesn't know me? Wait. Okay, you're right. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? It's like you don't realize sometimes the things you've done and accomplished in life. And um, it's like almost like, oh, where do I begin? But uh, in general, I'm you know originally from Mississippi and I moved to, to Madison when I was eight years old. And then I went to high school, middle school, all that stuff here. And I got tired of being the only black kid in all my classes. So I wanted to go to a black, historically black uh, college. And I went to uh, Alabama A&M initially. And then I ended up transferring to Southern University, which is in Baton Rouge. Alabama A&M is in Huntsville. And then I got a degree in journalism, broadcast journalism, came back to Madison after college. College, couldn't get a job and I think I worked at a brick factory and after almost two years of that kind of work I said man I, I did not go to college for this so I ended up packing all my stuff up had a, I think I had a thousand bucks at that time which was a lot of money and <laughs> still a lot of money and I got in my car and I went back to Louisiana and I had a job in uh, the TV business uh, two weeks later started off as, as a camera guy and I worked my way into become a, a news reporter so I work at PBS Wisconsin in Madison and I cover uh, social justice and uh, political types of issues here in the state. So what is one of the things that really drew you to Big Brothers Big Sisters? 
I mean, it's really their mission statement, their overall impact on community, and not just the community, but our community specifically. You know, and I just I just wanted to be part of of, of the success of, of what they do and what they're out to do and what they're looking to accomplish, and then to just better the, the life of some young person. It just spoke to me when I saw there was a need, and, you know, I've been here three years. I've been back three years. I moved here from uh, Sacramento, California. I was in Sacramento for about five years. Sacktown. Sacktown, you know, and I wanted to just make myself available. I do want to just jump in and say that's one of the biggest things for this campaign, right? It takes little to be big. Not only do we want to recruit, you know, a hundred new volunteers, bigs, but and from diverse backgrounds and things like that. But you know, there's just a lot of misconceptions about becoming a big. You know, when I'm out a lot, just presenting or at events, you know, one of them is time, you know, and another is just the burden of maybe mentorship. And it really takes little to be big. You know, having someone get a slice of pizza with you or some ice cream or you know, looking at and that's one of the things you know besides some of the stories that you told me that were moving of why you chose to do it too but um having a little look up to you with all that you've accomplished you know and like you said they might not want to be a journalist but they're exposed to it you know this is something that they can see and you know again i i do want to stress we're not asking people to be perfect we're just asking you to be present and that's really it i mean when i first became a big you know at first you're like oh i gotta do all this grand stuff you know and i feel like for me i did come from a two-parent household and that was one of the other reasons why it pushed me because i know a lot of the kids on the wait list are not coming from that home I tried to do these big things. You know, I I took my little to a Badger football game. She was like, I can't keep my attention during this. You know, I thought it was a big deal, which I think it was still because when would she have gotten the opportunity? But then, you know what? I really started making it simple. It takes little to be big. We like went and got lunch one day and she loved it. What is the ideal candidate for a big? What are the qualifications or the characteristics that you're looking for in a big? So I would say this. I mean, definitely since I've taken the role of community outreach, we need more bigs of color and we need more men. I mean, it's just the truth. That's what we need. Qualifications just in general, 18 and older, being able to pass a background check, having a valid driver's license, auto insurance. But in general, you don't have to be perfect. Just be present. Just you living a life is enough. Enough of an example. That was D-Star sitting down with Tracy Anderson and Merv Seymour of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Dane County. This week on The House Always Wins, carpentry and structures and poor safe practices role models, John and Allie, discuss how you can get ahead of ice dams before they form. I call it housework. Because it's life work. What you, what you got Hello, everybody. I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. We all love cool stuff, especially today, right? Because we have officially entered ice dam season. Dun, dun, dun. That's a combination of two heavy snowfalls recently, followed by the deep freeze. And that has bloomed some pretty big ice dams on a lot of houses. You know, those pretty little icicles hanging off the edge that look so sweet and lovely. And you'll see them in all kinds of postcards and things, right? Those kind? Yeah, just like a Hansel and Gretel's house. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, so regardless, as pretty as those icicles are, ice dams can be very damaging to your home as water backs up behind the dam and leaks into your home. As water will do behind dams. Absolutely. That's true. 
Ice dams form when warm air from inside your home, it leaks into the attic and it begins to melt the snow on your roof. As that snow, which is now water, runs down the roof, it's smooth running mm. until it gets to the part of the roof that extends past the walls of your home, what we would call the overhang. Right. That part of the roof, it isn't getting heated by that warm air leaking into the attic, so it's much colder. That's where the water refreezes and that ice starts to build up as more and more water runs down the roof. Pretty soon, the ice dam is formed and any additional water that runs down the roof starts to pool behind that dam and it can eventually leak into your house. Exactly. It's not exactly the kind of pool we all wanted when we were kids either, right? Not that kind of pool. I had that situation in my previous house, huge ice dams. Literally, I went and shoveled the snow off and there was a little pound of water behind the ice dam. It was not, it was not good. We'll get more into that in a bit. To prevent ice dams from forming, you have to prevent warm air from leaking up into your attic from the house. So this is done with proper air sealing, insulation, and venting. And that's something we discussed in a previous show, yeah? But for today, let's set aside addressing this root cause. And let's talk about what you can do today if you have ice dams on your roof. As a homeowner, you have a couple of options, right? First involves prepping your house in the fall to prevent the growth of dams. I like that, the growth of ice dams. Like it's like a cancerous growth. I like that. Kind of is. It is, it is. So prevent the growth of dams using heating coils installed on the roof. These coils sell for about 50 to $100 for about a 100-foot roll. And you install them on the roof and the overhang before the snow flies. But you plug them in, and they're basically a giant uh, heating coil. Then, as the snow melt is running down the roof, instead of freezing as it gets to that cold overhang part, this thing warms up your roof, and it keeps that water just running right on down and down off your roof. So for this system to work best, it's important that the gutters are cleared of leaves and the downspouts are also cleared of snow. The idea is that you just keep the water on flowing until it is all the way off the house. It doesn't address the root problem, as we said, but it can be a fairly economical and easy, safe way to keep the ice dams at bay for now. That's one good way to address that preventive from happening before they form. Another method, it's also economical, it's not quite as safe, (laughs) is using a roof rake to clear snow off the edge of the roof. A roof rake. Yeah. So now a roof rake is a, it's a specialized tool. It looks kind of like a garden rake without any of the tines. Mm. And it's about 18 inches wide, give or take. And it comes with a real long handle. And you can buy one of these at a hardware store probably for under $50 or so. The idea here is you're going to pull the snow off of the roof. Ideally, before it gets really deep, you're trying to clear off that edge of the roof and maintain a pathway for water to run off the roof. But there's certainly some limitations and some cautions if you're going to go this route. Oh, yeah. Using tools out in the cold. uh, Yeah, for sure. For one thing, the raker, that being maybe you, should definitely be on the ground while using this tool. Do not climb a ladder to use this tool. I mean, just think about that for a split second. Yeah, I think it's kind of obvious. Don't yeah, ladder work, ladder, ice, ice. What, what could, could go, possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> so given that, this tool can be useful if you have a single-story home, but it really is impossible to use safely on a two-story home. Yeah, and also, you're going to be raking all the snow towards yourself. Right, towards yourself, I mean, yes. I think there's no other real way. I don't think um, so. Which is why you don't want to let too much snow pile up between rakings. So it's one thing to sort of pull a couple inches of snow onto you and annoying, but, mm-hmm. but probably okay. Uh, it's kind of another if you're going to try to, like, grab a 12-inch avalanche of snow. Oh, God. And pull that on you. It's got some icicles in there. You know, that's downright dangerous. Oh, yeah. Well, it'll be entertaining to the neighbors, that's for sure. Oh, man, for real. (laughs) You know, one other thing is that it's a metal tool, Mm. and you do want to be aware of any power lines near where you're working because that's an electrocution hazard. 
And you want to make sure you are only using a roof rake on your roof, which it doesn't damage your shingles. They do a pretty good job of not damaging your shingles. Other tools like, oh, I, I don't have one of those, but I got this hoe here in my garage. How about if I use that or a shovel or a regular garden rake? The problem is they'll damage your shingles, and it'll really bum you out come spring and summer when your roof starts to leak. Well, then you'll have ice dams and broken shingles. That sounds like a lot of fun. Two for the price of one. Two for the price of one. It sounds like fun if you're a roofing contractor, but I don't think homeowners would like that. Yeah. What about an axe? Is an axe a good tool for this job? You know, it's interesting you ask that because you know things. Those ice dams I spoke of earlier got really bad in that previous house, and so I went up because it was starting to leak inside my house on my windows and doors, so I'm like, i got to deal with this. So I went up and shoveled the snow back, and sure enough, there was a little pond of water uh, right there. I'm like, wow, uh, what am I going to do? And so I looked, and I had to create channels through the ice dam and I started tinking away at it with my hammer and it's like this ain't working and in my you know I I swear to god I did not have any beer uh, before doing this but I climbed down and I I did grab an axe maybe not my finest moment I mean I didn't get hurt nobody else got hurt I might have damaged a couple shingles so that was you know even knowing what I do and trying to be quote-unquote careful it didn't work as great as I thought it would but so would this be a don't try this at home moment that would be, would this be do a hold, as I say hold not my as, beer hold my beer it's a combination hold my beer and do as I say and not as I did yeah <laughs> and finally and I can't emphasize this enough do not try to melt down your ice dam using a blowtorch, <laughs> blowtorch. a hair dryer oh, yeah. a heat gun or really anything we got to say this right because somebody probably would try Oh, I'm sure it's been done. Because first of all, with the blowtorches, directing an open flame towards your house, that is just always Always. a a mistake. And then tell me how you would ever be able to use a heat gun or a hairdryer on the roof without climbing up some sketchy ladder leaning against an ice-filled gutter. feels to me like there's something about those ice dams that this brings out this primordial man versus nature impulse. Mm. But I'm sorry to tell you that nature always wins. It does. And it often takes revenge (laughs) for your efforts. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes in very painful ways. Once again, entertaining for the neighbors, but I don't think it's exactly what you're after. Indeed, if the ice dam has formed, you, the homeowner, probably can't safely get rid of it. And at that point, it's best to hire a contractor who will use a steam jet to maybe melt it off. That's probably all we have time for today. So until next time, if you have any other questions about home improvement, construction, or carpentry, and you'd like us to answer, please drop us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. And until then, happy axing. Happy axing. Emily Klug says she started sewing because she just wanted to do something with her hands. Along the way, Klug says she found a talent for creating sewing patterns with zero waste. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, Klug and feature contributor Jennifer Fields discuss the magic of sewing. My mom was a seamstress or a sewer, and my grandma was also and a knitter, and so it's, you know, in the family to do that kind of stuff. It's one thing, Emily, for you just wanting to do something, but we're now in a room that has been devoted to. (laughs) Talk to me about those steps. Was it wanting to do something with my children, for my children, for myself? Who was this wanting to do something for? 
I think it was mostly for myself. I, I I do know that I started when I started making my own clothes. I was just like it was like kind of a magical process that oh I could take this piece of fabric and I now have something that fits me. I never liked to go shopping. The process of doing all that stuff just it was never really appealing to me. But I, I didn't dislike the clothes concept of it. It's just the going to get it. And so being able to make something where I got to pick the pattern, pick the fabric, you know, all that stuff came together, and that was I really liked that process. I guess about eight or nine years ago, I was also making some, like experimenting with some different things, like some natural dyeing and some embroidery and using those, giving them as Christmas presents. And my family had encouraged me to try to, they're like, well, you know, this is stuff that people might be interested in. You should try to see if you can do something with it. And so that's kind of where I started. And it was kind of a base, you know, I did some natural dyeing of home goods and some bags and some upcycling of garments and trying to make some things. And I did a few, uh, what do you call those? Uh, craft markets. <laughs> but then the pandemic came, right? And so then, you know, like the craft markets, there's a lot that goes into doing those. You know, you've got to do all the product development and all the, and you have to have a lot of stuff to do those and you have to apply for them and there's a lot of investment and all that stuff. And then I kind of fell into trying to make my own sewing pattern and I was like, hmm, because I, I tried to zero waste pattern and I'm like, oh, this like really clicks in my brain how this all kind of comes together. I have to say, watching you do the tutorials, I know you speed them up for time, <laughs> right. but they're fast even if you do them slow. It, it really is almost like... How can I say this? I'm learning to swim and I will watch people swim just to sort of get better technique. And there are people who can swim and they just cut through the water like a knife. And it's like you cut through fabrics without (laughs) pins. It doesn't move. Everything is perfect. And then you say you start this. You started this before the pandemic. So I'm thinking looking at your patterns and watching you sew, that you've been doing this for 20 years. I mean, I've been sewing for a while. Making the patterns, that has been a newer, you know, since right around the pandemic. I think I have a background in architecture. And so like the idea of how the things like fit together and looking at something in 2D and then realizing it in 3D is something that I can see that it's easier for me. And so I think that that helps. And I really like the idea of puzzling it all together and seeing how all the pieces will fit and how they how you can use everything. And so it's just kind of been a natural evolution. So, Emily, it seems to me that you were slow fashion before we had a name for it. I, I mean, I don't know if that's 100 percent true, but um, oh, I'm saying yeah. it's true. <laughs> OK, you can say it's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've been it, it is slow. I'm it's a slow process doing all this stuff that I've been working on. But it's a it's a satisfying process to to work on all of these projects. So I, I really enjoy it. Your company is called Goldfinch. My understanding is it's simple patterns, zero waste. And that when I downloaded them online, I had a choice between like either printing the pattern out or just going directly onto paper or onto fabric. Depending on the complexity of the pattern, because some are some are easier that you can just like dimension out simply and put onto the fabric. Some are a little bit more complex, like the, the Jones trousers there. That would be a lot more difficult to say, you know, this is how you draw it directly onto fabric. So that one I have where you can print it out and then you can either cut through the the pattern first and puzzle it back together on the fabric, or you could just pin the pattern to the fabric and cut through the fabric to then cut out your pattern pieces. So then what specifically is zero waste? Because Emily, I tell you, when I pick up a pattern and it says zero waste, I immediately have a little bit of anxiety because in my head, zero waste is zero waste. Yes. 
And I think that different pattern designers um, have different definitions of it. For me, the definition is is that you're going to use as much of the required fabric as possible. And I do it that way instead of basing it on like, okay, so some standard widths of fabric are like 44 inches, 52 inches, 56, you know, 60 inches. So a lot of times what a pattern designer will do, a zero waste pattern designer will do, will like they'll pick 52 inches, let's say, and they will do their layout, make their design out of that. And it's based on that. So you only have, it's like a one size fits you know, uh, from 32 inch bust to like 54 inch bust, which doesn't give you a lot of complexity in your size range. So for me, instead of saying that it's just going to be based on the width, I do it based on the required amount of fabric. So I start with, let's say a rectangle and let's say for a smaller size, you maybe only need to use 40 inches of the 44 inches, whereas a bigger size, maybe of a 52 inch width, you you could get all the way to the 52 inch width. So in some sizes, you might have a leftover rectangle of like four inches, which is your total length, which is some waste, but it's a use, it's a much more usable piece of waste than these odd shaped things that sometimes you get when you're really trying to pattern Tetris all your pieces together. The little teeny tiny triangles you get at the end, and it's like, am I supposed to now make this into a quilt? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? There's so much extra added pressure of making sure I use every bit of yeah, fabric. It's, it's, it's daunting. A, it is a, that is a lot of... It is a lot of pressure and it's a lot of stress sometimes when you're really wanting to try to use as much as you can. You know, I would say for me, I I like that I know that I have this very usable piece. Sometimes it is like, okay, I've built up now a bunch of usable pieces. I need to make something with that. And, you know, I've thought of like making a quilt, like a striped quilt or something that would could use those pieces really easily. I'm also like in my next pattern that I'm working on is a button up shirt. And there are some funky pieces that in order to get get a bunch of size ranges is I've got a couple pieces that are just they're just weird. And I'm like, well, what do I do with these? And I'm contemplating using them as like amending patch or amending little pocket that you actually sew into the garment so that it wears the same way that the fabric does. You know, like if you're wearing, like, let's say it's black or linen or something, you know, that fabric wears over time. And if then, you know, you get a stain on it or you rip a little hole in it and you want to mend it, but you want it to be more invisible, like, you know, still look really good. This patch could then be used to mend the garment and it the fabric then would look the same. But, you know, those are like little details that I'm trying to figure out, like, how to work in. We'll see. <laughs> For WORT... I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Your reporter this evening was Sarah Gabler. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, John Stephanie, and Allie Bereni, and Jennifer Fields. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. If you can't catch all the things live, stay up to date with the local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.